This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hey, everybody. Welcome uh, again. Welcome back to EMS uh, 2020. And uh, yeah, Spence, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. So uh, that's Spencer Oliver. Uh, I'm Chris Finkston. I think the intro said something about that already. But hey, um, I don't listen to it. I just plug it at the beginning of the episode. So uh, today's episode uh, (laughs) is going to be brought to you by Spencer. And... I believe it's going to be more about uh, kind of the fears that brand new paramedics have, uh, which is kind of what our show is about. That's kind of our bread and butter is uh, your. Yeah, you confided in me that this is a fear that you have. (laughs) I was like, you know what, dude, I got you. In fact, we have a listener who submitted a call just for this moment. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, Nailed it. rest easy, my friend. <laughs> yeah, all right, perfect. Now it can reassure me. It's a good thing that I'm giving advice to um, li- literally thousands of listeners a week now uh, on how to do this <laughs> when I'm apparently afraid of the job. Um, so, <laughs> uh, also, before we get too far started, we are going to go ahead and uh, have a little bit of a listener uh, question slash discussion thing, but most of it's going to be celebratory. It's not even really a question, it's more of a statement. Uh, as you guys know, we recently had a bit of a contest where we put up a 12 lead and we asked you guys to tell us what it was and what you would do and that there was going to be a prize. Well, there is a prize. And uh, Spencer, if you want to reveal the winner, drum roll. All right. So we have. Damn it. Now it won't load up his stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fuck you, Facebook business. <laughs> You'll be funny because we've already talked to the guy. And, uh, you know, uh, they know they won. And I think it'd be hilarious right now if we just mentioned someone else's name. And they're listening like, the fuck? I thought it was me. All right. I've got this stuff right here. Here we go. All right. So, yeah, uh, the listener, this listener submitted their answer. They said that they thought it was a septal MI with the inferior and lateral depression. And they would call it a uh, STEMI. To which I said, excellent response. So, Kieran Schwartz, you are the winner. Um, Kieran hails from Wilmington, North Carolina. And Chris and I have scrounged together our pennies and we'll receive $50. Woo! <laughs> Whoa, big spender. That's, if, dude, if that's you guys like want big bigger bucks pro- in EMS. <laughs> hey, there you go. Actually, yeah, that's someone, some EMT just walked into their boss's office and quit. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's dude. That's EMT. Fuck you, money right there. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you, man. I'm out. So again, like, yeah, congr- uh, pull fuck off. Uh, congr- <laughs> uh, congratulations, congratulations, Kieran. Uh, great job. Uh, t- to be clear, the twelve lead was a. We ended up calling it a high lateral MI with a septal involvement. Uh, with with likely uh, septal involvement, I believe. Get correct, Spence. Yep, that's correct. All right, perfect. And so Kieran was the most right. Uh, what do you want to know? Kieran's not even a paramedic yet. So way to go, Kieran. We're proud yeah, of you. Kieran is, in, Kieran is in paramedic school and is almost done. And it. Uh, I'm thrilled that he recognized the STEMI, despite it not quite meeting the STEMI 
<clears throat> traditional STEMI criteria. Yeah. So, Which if you listen to, to our last episode, you know exactly what we think of traditional STEMI criteria. Yeah. So, uh, hey, with that, guys, I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping, and that is always the same, and that's going to be this. If you like us, please go ahead and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at EMS20 slash 20. You can follow us on on Instagram at EMS2020show and send us an email at EMS2020podcast at gmail.com. With that, Spence, let's get it going. All right. So this call takes place in a system where a full-time medic and EMT basic are stationed at a rural fire department in a small town, which is about an hour's drive from uh, the local hospital. Mm -hmm. And midway through the call, the EMT basic finds out that he won 50 bucks and quits on the spot. (laughs) Quits on the spot. That's... Oh, fuck. (laughs) Dude, that was really good. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right, here we go. (laughs) All right. God damn it. Now I'm laughing because it's like, now I'm laughing because I'm laughing. All right. Lemon, lion, lemon, lion. All right. The shifts are 24. The shifts are 20. <laughs> Dude. I mean, this basic shift is only like six hours because he quit. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm not even, Dude, I haven't even, like, I had a beard, like, at dinner. I'm fucking sober. This, this is fucking cracking me up. All, All right. right. Fuck this. I'm starting over. All right. All right. This call takes place in a system where a full-time medic and EMT basic are stationed at a rural fire department in a small town about an hour's drive from the local hospital. The shifts are typically 24 hours on, 48 hours off. And aside from the ambulance, there is one dedicated fire personnel who typically responds to all the calls in the town. Any response beyond that is based on the availability of volunteers who are usually EMT or first responder level. Any response beyond that is mutual aid from other neighboring areas. This area is described as typically slow in terms of call volumes, which equates to about one to three calls per day. So really quick, Spence, just some clarification, if you if, if you know. Um, did they say by chance to these EMT or first responders? So basically you have the paramedic who's on station all the time. You've got yep. another volunteer who responds to the station from home or are they at the station? Oh, no, they, there's, it, it's a paramedic and an EMT that are at the station. Okay, and then the and then, and then the, the response needed to be on that is going to be EMT or first responder volunteers that will then respond from home to the station. And, yep. gra- and, grab and a rig. then they'll hop in. Yep, they'll hop in a rig and, and gotcha. head on out. And anything needed to be on that is essentially coming from out of town. Exactly. Okay, sorry to, yep. sorry to derail there. All right, nope, cool. I'm glad you clarified. All right, so our medic... Greenstick has been a paramedic for about three months. That's three whole months, Ooh. not three and a half, All not right. four. Not two and a half, though. Uh, not two and a half. No, I'm this many. Uh, <laughs> previously, they worked as an EMT for about a year in a high-volume system. Their partner, Saltlick, has been an EMT for over a decade, though they have only worked together for a few shifts at the time of this call. So, what is the call? A call comes in for shortness of breath at a private residence around 6 a.m. on a weekday morning. 
The call is on the edge of town, which is about 10 minutes away from the fire station. Greenstick is woken up from his uneasy sleep by the toning out of the call, and hears the readback for breathing difficulty. Greenstick, like many new medics, has been dreading the big one. And the big one is that looming, inevitable call that they feel might test them and prove that they are, in fact, just an imposter playing Mm. paramedic. And this will finally call, this call will finally prove to themselves and to everyone else that they were really just not meant to be paramedics. It, you know, that, that's actually pretty relatable. I, um, that's, yeah, that's I can remember relatable. being, yeah, being in early, especially when you're in these systems where you are like the only medic. It's nice being in systems that are medic saturated where you can kind of learn from the distance and, um, To me, there's kind of two routes you get to go as a paramedic in your career. One is this route, which both you and I kind of did this, where it's like, hey, you're a new medic. And also, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you're the only medic. And so you kind of get this imposter feeling like, I don't know what to do because I'm suddenly in charge of a job I'm new at. Um, But then you have the other route, which is where you almost get cocky because like, yeah, you come right out of school. You're not really responsible for anything because you're, you know, the (laughs) junior paramedic. But fuck, you talk shit about your partner behind their back all the time. Yeah. So the other day he called it this. I'd have totally called it this. You know, like that happens. But that's a nicer system to grow up in because you don't actually have to be faced uh, with this. Although I will say. Yeah, there's no trial by fire. There isn't. But I will almost say that the trial by fire. I think it almost breeds, it can breed a pretty good paramedic provided they are able to reflect and look inward. And I would say eventually get out of that system uh, only because I think systems where you're isolated as a paramedic, you tend to, I I don't think there's as much, uh, a lot of systems and this could be, it really depends on the system you're in, but there's a lot of systems I think where, Hey, maybe you're the only paramedic around. There's not, there's no one else to call you out on your shit. You know what I mean? When you do things wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I told myself this when I uh, worked as a, you know, as a single paramedic in, you know, uh, responding. Uh, nobody else knows I'm fucking up. And uh, I took comfort in that. Oddly enough, it's a, it's kind of a comforting feeling. You're like, yeah. oh yeah, nobody knows I'm, nobody knows I'm drowning as long, you know, but uh, that, you know, there's, I guess, some problems with that too. I, I think the big thing here is like, you know, as a, as a new medic or an intern, you hear all those other, you know, new medics and interns talking about these like crazy calls that they went on with their preceptor or like with their partner. And I mean, there was a lot of like, you know, they're, they're going through these details and, you know, I'm sitting there going like, fuck, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what I would do. Like he was ejected <laughs> through the windshield and it like threw a tree branch and the tree took his pants. Like, ah, where do you like, what do you even do? do well step one buy him new pants yeah yeah, step one obviously get pants step three (laughs) profit uh but uh i just you know like if you're if you're a new medic and you're hearing these stories from your friends like remember that they are stories stories tend to be embellished they're of course not going to tell you that they were on scene about to shit their pants too so uh i would just you know imposter syndrome's really really common when you start out so anyway um so there he is he wakes up hearing the call and on hearing the readback green stick actually feels pretty good about this call because it doesn't sound too tough the readback by the way is this the neighbor 
to the 911 caller came over that morning reporting that they were having shortness of breath and asking for help. They don't have a phone in their residence. Oh, nice. The, ca- the, the neighbor does it or the patient doesn't? The patient doesn't have a phone. Oh, so he went why, over to the okay, neighbor gotcha. saying, hey, I'm short of breath. I guess that was obvious. So, my bad. No, that's fine. The ca- It'd be weird if it were the other way around. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm coming states, over here just to point out how inadequate and unprepared you are by not having a phone. I I called 911 back there. <laughs> I'm having shortness of breath. If, what if I didn't have a phone? Yeah. What would you do then, Jim? Absolutely. Anyway. <laughs> God damn it, Kyle. Yeah, fucking All Kyle. Right. So... <clears throat> The caller states that their dog will be secured and the front door will be open to the residents for EMS's arrival. And I think this is the, uh, I think this is the thing that reassured him. Um, and I'm, I'm going to interpret this, which basically is like the patient walked to the neighbor's house and told them that they were having short of breath, like shortness of breath. Yeah. You know, it's actually kind of funny because the other thing that I found reassuring about this was that they're like, Oh, by the way, my dog will be secured. People who are panicking because someone's really sick aren't able to tell you shit about their dog. Like that's normally not something that comes up. Oh yeah. That's no, that's a really solid point. That was, that was actually um, yeah, the, the, the first thing that I kind of clued in. Cause, and I'm actually glad you brought that up. Cause I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, Oh, well they're telling us about the dog that I'm sure things are fine. Yeah, no, but uh, Greenstick is reassured. So he dons his uniform and heads out to the ambulance bay and meets his bleary-eyed partner, Saltlick. And they open the bay doors and confirm the response on the radio. Dispatch then responds to them, uh, be advised, the patient is now reported to be in cardiac arrest with the caller doing CPR. Well, Saltlick acknowledges the update and per Greenstick, who for the record gave us this call, Takes off code three down the road, just tired looking. That's the best way to drive an ambulance. <laughs> Neither of the two, yeah, right? Neither of the two talk on the way in. Green spit. Green stick explained to me the following. Green spit. Yep. Green stick explained to me the following. I won't lie. I was feeling pretty panicked about the call at that point as I was the only paramedic. I had worked codes before on my internship and practiced running them in school, but there was always at least one or two other ALS providers involved Can in those I scenarios. Can I interject with a slight rant here? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, so this this is kind of um, this is kind of a problem with a lot of the EMS training that I see out there, and, and I'm sure it doesn't apply to every program. But in a lot of programs and testing, you'll go there. It's like, all right, there's you, and you have as many providers as you needed, or it's you and another paramedic. People don't often practice where it's like, hey, you're the only paramedic. What are you going to do? And there's some reasoning behind that, because oftentimes when you're the only paramedic, um, it's not necessarily good to do paramedic things. So if you're in paramedic school... It doesn't really help you to learn if the solution is to not do paramedic things. I get that. But people also need to learn um, how, how to how to work with minimal resources. So anyway, that's just kind of Absolutely. my little tangent is there's a lot of education. I mean, you hear it all the time. All right. Uh, how many uh, how many partners do I have? Uh, you know, what's what's my crew? I uh, yeah, have as many people as you need. No, you right. never, you never fucking do. Like you never, like unless you're working in the middle of some oversaturated system, like you never have as many yeah. people as you need. And oftentimes in systems where you do have a ton of people, half of them don't care. So you really, 
You really never have as many people as you need. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, that's fine. Greenstick says, here, it was just going to be me and my partner, and I was going to be in charge. I'm going to editorialize, Greenstick, I too have hurtled down the road towards a panic-inducing call that I wanted no part uh, of. So, it's uh, hashtag relatable AF. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... They arrive at the residence and Salt Lake parks and just wordlessly hops out of the ambulance, presumably to, presumably to do things. All the uh, things. Greenstick opens his door and, uh, quote, tries to remember how to walk. <laughs> I imagine he looks like a baby giraffe, like stumble, like, what are my feet for? You know, I, I'm, I'm impressed he opened the door, to be honest. <laughs> Good so, job, Greenstick. So Saltlick grabs the monitor from their side compartment and uh, just hands it to Greenstick, who, uh, side note here, probably does look green from nausea, (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, grabs the jump kit. And they just head inside uh, the, as promised, open door to the residence. Do you know what they keep it? What what they? I'm just curious what they keep in their jump kit that they say, or is just like, hey, I I think it's just a like a miscellaneous kit with because from the call notes that I have, it was like they they had their intubation stuff, their medication. So I'm imagining it's just one of those sort of like sectioned off uh, jump kits. Okay, so it's just like a like a catch all kit. Okay. Yep. So the cricothyrotomy is probably not in there, but the code drugs and IV shit probably is. Yeah, I think anything you would need on your standard call would probably be in there. So the residence is mid-sized cabin and the patient is found lying supine in the middle of the floor in what is essentially just kind of a large living room space. Mm -hmm. There's a 30s male doing chest compressions and another very, another very worried looking woman assumed to be the 30 male's wife standing kind of in the background. When the male sees EMS, they immediately stop compressions and start to get up. Greenstick goes to jump into the open compression spot, but before they can even take a second step, uh, like a second step forward, Saltlick sternly says to the male, "No, keep doing compressions. You're doing a good job. We will tell you when to stop." Good work, Saltlick. And the bystander just kind of gets back on the chest and continues doing compressions. Saltlick then gets down. Uh, to the patient's side and starts cutting the shirt around the compressor. Greenstick sets the monitor down next to Saltlick, and after a moment of indecision as to what to do next, decides that they will manage airway. <laughs> they pull out the BVM and O2 bottle from the jump kit and then catch sight of the intubation roll. They say at that moment, they suddenly remembered that the BVM mask seal is really hard to get with one person especially with a bearded patient, which their patient was. And suddenly, the only option that now makes sense to Greenstick is that they must intubate this patient. Wow. So they set about that process. They pull out their DL scope and their blade and a 7.0 ET tube and are looking for the other accoutrements they need for intubation when their partner calls out, PEA. I'm taking over compressions now. Let's give the patient breaths. Wow. All right. Greenstick acknowledges the request, but continues to fumble over their intubation equipment. Saltlick then asks, are you going to give the patient two breaths? Greenstick responds, yeah, but we need to get an airway first. 
Mm. Saltlick looks confused, but starts compression again. Then he says, while doing compressions, just put in an OPA. They're right there on that top pouch. Greenstick informs them that they will be intubating the patient, citing their concerns about the mask seal. Before Greenstick can even finish that thought, though, he also realizes that he urgently needs to start an IV, give fluids, epi, and thinks perhaps they started down the wrong path first. So perhaps they should go instead to start an IV, give epi, and then come back to intubation. But as they think that, then they remember that they do also need to give breaths and feel that they can't because they don't have an airway. The indecision increases their panic. Shit, I need to give an IV and epi, and we've got to tube this guy, is what he voices out loud to his partner. And that's, and I'll, I'll touch on this a little bit more later, but this, this right here is the problem with thinking treatment first and not assessment first. So anyway, we'll, we'll hit this later. <laughs> Perfect. Saltlick says, hey, it's just us. Let's just focus on doing good CPR at the moment. We'll get to the other stuff when we can. Just bag the patient in five, four, three, two, one. They stop compressing and say, now give them some breaths. <laughs> Greenstick does as they are told. <laughs> Saltlick then resumes CPR and asks the bystander if they're able to continue helping out with CPR. The bystander readily agrees. Saltlick then tells his partner, forget intubating. Just drop a king airway. <laughs> Don't waste the time. Yeah. Greenstick agrees and gets out the appropriate sized king airway and places it while Saltlick compresses, inflating the balloon and getting the BVM attached just as just a little after the next cycle of breaths would actually be due. They have a brief but comfortable rhythm, but Greenstick still urgently wants to get an IV started and Epi on board, and he tells this to his partner, who nods during the compressions and says, okay. Saltlick stops compressions at the rhythm check, Checks for a pulse and says, okay, still looks like PEA, right? Greenstick agrees, and Saltlick, who Greenstick notes didn't really wait for his partner to respond, Perfect. is already telling the bystander, you're back on CPR. The bystander starts CPR and is coached by Saltlick to the appropriate rate, depth, etc. Nice. While he, while he Saltlick, takes over the breathing part of the BVM. This frees up Greenstick to go get that IV, buddy. <laughs> go get him, guy. the bag and gets the <laughs> IV, nails it. And while he's doing that, Saltlick asks about patient information from the bystander and his wife, who, again, is still in the background while Greenstick is working. Wow. Greenstick right probably feels great. <laughs> Right as Epi is being drawn up, three volunteer fire uh, responders arrive, one of whom also works full-time for a private ambulance company as an EMT. Greenstick pushes that one milligram of one to 10,000 Epi and then opens the fluid bag. Uh, I think it was just saline. Mm. One of the responders goes over and switches out with the bystander, whose nickname for this episode should be fucking Hercules or right? Strongman Hero or anything because of all the goddamn CPR he just did. Yeah, that being said, it's my first time doing CPR, like I was I was just adrenaline up and I did it like the whole time. So this so my first time doing CPR was I was a high school student doing a ride along. 
And uh, so this is longer ago than I'd like to admit. And when you're a high school student doing <laughs> a right along. 20 year reunions coming up, right? Uh, yeah, sure is actually yeah. dickhead. Um, but uh, it's actually a true statement. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, uh, I sit, I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm there. This was before we really had a lot of data on like, hey, you need to rotate compressors. Otherwise, CPR gets worse. Uh, I just did CPR the entire time. Just me. I'm like, I got this. It's fine. They're like, okay. And uh, yeah, the next morning I'm like, holy fuck, this is terrible. My bag, did I break my back? Should I see a doctor? What should, you know, anyway. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, I, I'm all about it until that two minute mark. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> Somebody else needs to do this. You're like coughing. <laughs> you're right. sitting there doing compressions. You're like, man, can I just win 50 bucks so I don't have to do this anymore? <laughs> There it is. Sorry. All right. No, perfect. So they do CPR until the next rhythm check and then pause for the rhythm analysis. Saltlick says it looks like sinus tack and there is a pulse check and it's noted that there is a strong carotid pulse that matches. Rosk is achieved. All right. One of the... One of the other volunteers, the aforementioned experienced DMT, notes that there is no end tidal CO2 monitoring, nor is there any kind of uh, additional securing for the King Airway, and asks Greenstick, who is dumbfounded that they just got pulses back, if they would like them to take care of that. Greenstick says, uh, yes. And the experienced volunteer accomplishes that. Meanwhile, a backboard and stretcher are fetched by Saltlick and another volunteer. So, uh, right quick, sorry to interrupt. Um, right quick. So, for those of you listening that maybe are not in the field or are really, really new to it, you might be wondering why we're bringing in a backboard uh, to a non-trauma patient. So, a backboard is the device we typically use to immobilize the spine in trauma. You've seen it on television, I'm sure. Um, but a lot of times we use it on codes. Um, because one, it's really easy to move the patient once you get them on a backboard. Uh, and two, it's a nice hard surface to always do, to be able to do CPR on uh, when they're on the gurney, if there's a soft mattress on the gurney. That being said, gurneys are typically stiff enough to where you could do compressions anyway. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, what? Uh, there's no patient who's like, you know what? I don't like this stretcher. The cushioning is too, there's too much. It's, yeah, it's, it's too it's decadent. Never, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that has never happened in the history of EMS. Uh, but uh, but yeah, we typically we use the backboards just because they're uh, there. It's really easy just to move people on backboards and get them out of a house. So there you go. Yeah, probably, probably the only redeeming quality for a backboard. But right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a full set of vitals are taken. Heart rate is 116. Sinus tack on the monitor. Blood pressure is 144 over 102. No respiratory drive is noted by the patient, so he is just depending on the breathing that the uh, volunteers are doing. GCS, that Glasgow Coma Scale, is a three, so he is unresponsive. Greenstick orders the patient's respirations to be titrated to end-tidal CO2, which they say they want to be around 35 millimeters of mercury. The patient is then carefully rolled onto the backboard, moved to the stretcher, and taken out to the ambulance. Greenstick and two of the three volunteers ride in with the patient while Salt Lick drives. 
There are no complications or significant changes reported during the trip. They did do some post-cardiac uh, arrest active cooling measures. So basically, they just threw a couple ice packs in the uh, groin and armpit region to try and kind of cool the patient off, um, which is – is that I, – I don't know anymore if that's standard or if that's sort of old, to um, be honest. I, yeah. I think we're kind of moving away from – from that, we're just kind of going to like, eh, just try and keep them the temperature that they are. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. So and regardless, they did it. It was part of their protocol. Sweet. Um, but they did not do a postcode 12 lead, nor Ooh. do they recall a CBG being checked. Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> I never would have fucked that up. Just saying. Uh, the I don't know. I'm actually pretty about, sure you would. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Don't feel like there's any record of that. Uh, So the trip takes about 30 minutes going code three. As for outcome, the patient was reported to have walked out of the hospital a week and a half later, fully intact. Oh, wow. Which is a phenomenal outcome. Good. And basically all the credit goes to none of the responders the 911 caller who did compressions. Hero guy. Yeah. (laughs) Strong man. Hercules. That dude. Hercules, yes. Um, so, <laughs> this is probably my favorite part. Salt Lick told Greenstick after they dropped off the patient, nice work. I really think that went well. <laughs> Which blew Greenstick's mind. <laughs> and this is why I love it, because this is just such a very human thing. It's like uh, it's likely that a lot of the coloring that Greenstick included in the story, which of course then we included in the story, right. just wasn't at all as visible as they had imagined. You know, like I'm, I, I think he thought his indecision on what to do, you know, lasted an eternity. You know, everyone, including like the patient, kind of like opened their eyes and was like, dude, you got to do something, man. Like, what are you doing here? Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, like it probably was just like, you know, just a couple seconds, but that's, that's like panic induced time dilation. That, that's a real thing that, that happens to people. So anyway, uh, green stick, thank you so much for sending us this fantastic call. Um, for, they sent this to us after hearing uh, I see dead people. Uh, and honestly, I just love the detail that they included. Oh, and yeah. I thought it was just such a relatable call and worth reviewing. So, it is. yeah, let's let's review this call. Yeah, let's, let's take in some of the lessons here. So ultimately, one of the things that I, I want to point out and Spence, I'm sure you're going to agree here. Uh, this just isn't a job we can do on our own, especially at Code 99. You've got to be able to work as a team. And it was really the team in this call that really made it work. And honestly, that's going to be every single one of these Code 99s. It's always going to be the team that makes it work. Um, strong PICs help, uh, but uh, it's all about teamwork. The strongest PICs are the ones that recognize there's a team and they utilize their team. Yeah, I I, I absolutely agree. I think that, uh, you know, like... The time this call started going well was the time that they started working together. Um, yeah. And, you know, Salt Lake said, like, hey, I need you to do things. You know, I need you to help me do this. Yeah. And that sort of set that in place. I, I, I think one of my big critiques, and, you know, I, I think Greenstick would openly acknowledge this, was the, like, th- they wasted time all the way there not talking 
Yeah. Um, you know, they, there was no pregame. There was no discussion. Yeah, I don't know if, you know, Salt Lake just sort of assumed that, you know, Greenstick as the paramedic would know what they were doing. And Greenstick or, probably didn't want to let on that he didn't know it, what he was doing by talking about it. Oh, for sure. I, you, you know, know. I, there is a lot of ego in this job. Um, and it's unfortunate in a lot of regards because, you know, nobody wants to be like, hey, man, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. Like, right. you, you, you know, the, the patients right. typically don't want to hear that. Uh, you know, yeah. your partners probably they, you know, there's this imagination that your partners also don't want to hear that going in. But, you know, don't tell your patients you don't know what you're doing. Uh, but tell your partners, confide in your partners, you know, fucking kill your ego and say like, Hey man, I'm a little stressed going on this call. Um, I, uh, it's been a while. I've never worked a code just by myself, you know, or just, you know, with just an EMT. I've never been the PIC on a code 99 before. Yeah. Um, so, Hey, help me out here. And you know what? People think it'll like, you know, your partners will be like, uh, but really, honestly, it's fucking personable. They go like, oh, finally, I'm working with not a paragod or a paramed dick. Yeah. Uh, I'm working with like a real person who like needs help and not like, one of those I can help people. them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I feel like I'm a, you know, a decently solid medic. I, mm. I fucking absolutely depend on my partners. You know, and especially on calls like this where, you know, like I've been on this call where I'm like the only paramedic there, Um, even as an experienced paramedic, it's still a little unnerving. There's just, you know, it's like, all right, well, we got to modify this. And I talked with my partner on the way out like, hey, so, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've been the only paramedic on a on a call like this. Uh, How should we do this? Absolutely. we, We figured it out. We're like, oh, we came up with a plan. And, you know, yeah, you get in there, the plan might have to change or it goes sideways. Um, but you're already in that mindset. You've already sort of, you've already sort of made an, an outline of how you kind of want the call to go. And both people know what that outline is. And it's a lot easier in that moment when you get those weird, you know, like pop-up issues um, to modify an outline that you already have that no longer applies rather than trying to come up with a plan on the spot. If you are a new medic, I do not, do not try to to come up with a plan in the moment or expect that you'll be able to in the moment, especially if you're like the sole ALS provider. Oh yeah. You will likely be overwhelmed uh, because we don't drill. As Chris said, we don't drill on these in these situations, we don't go like, all right, by the way, you're the only paramedic and that's Steve. Uh, he has no arms <laughs> and he's doing compressions just basically by laying on the person and kind of bouncing, like just so headbutting go. the guy chest over <laughs> and over again. Yeah. Uh, like nobody does that scenario. Um, and new medics often have a lot of interventions that they, they're trying to kind of place and figure out where they need to be done. You know, you're told, yeah, by, you know, by the second round, you'll definitely have an IV and you need to have an airway established. Like, and, and sometimes that shit just isn't possible because like you're the, you're the only guy. So, and I would also don't point, have it. And I want to point this out from the other angle too. So 
we just brought up a really good point, I think, is that if you're a new paramedic, it's okay to admit when you haven't done something before and talk it out. Likewise, though, if you're the experienced person on the rig, whether you're an EMT basic or paramedic, it's also okay to look at your partner and say, hey, uh, especially if they're new, it's like, so have you done a Code 99 before? That's totally yeah. awesome. Because that kind of, because here's the thing. I, let me tell you this. <clears throat> Sometimes it can be hard to reach out for help. And it's a lot easier to admit that you need it when someone offers it. In other words, it's easier to accept offered help than it is to ask for help that isn't offered. So yeah. I would say if you're in that experienced position, make that easy for the new people to do. Even if technically they're the paramedic and you're the EMT basic, make it easy. Yeah, because we we all know who ran this call. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it was yeah. Salt Lake. And by the way phenomenal job salt lake absolutely well done and one of the things that i really want to point out is i really love the use of resources uh, that they had on scene which was really them and hercules so like they walked in and they recognized right away that there was someone that was doing cpr they were apparently comfortable continuing they were doing a good job and from salt lake like and that's an experience move right there but from salt lake just walking in and being like hey you keep doing compressions and then coaching that person awesome pro move and that really freed up green stick to be able to uh, fuck around with the two they didn't need before doing an IV. So anyway. Yeah. I, 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 and I, you know, I also totally, you know, agree with the superglottic airway. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. That was absolutely the best call to make. I mean, an, an OPA also would have worked fine, but you know, a King in basically can be dropped in almost the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was perfect. And also, um, so far, cardiac arrest outcomes when it came to King versus, uh, you know, ET tube, the King was so far shown to be superior. Although, you know, the caveat there is I think the first pass success rate sucks for right. ET, which, you know, doesn't get any easier if you're trying to do compressions around, you know, well, like yeah. while someone's doing compressions and intubating and they should, you shouldn't stop compressing you know, uh, to, for intubation. So, sure. um, so yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I, the only criticism I have is just the, the, the time wasted at the front part of this, mm -hmm. the back part of this call was phenomenal. I think it really um, was. So here's my, my pointer to this uh, paramedic or to any new paramedics that are kind of coming up and are worried about being the only paramedic on scene. Uh, if you're worried about being the only paramedic on scene on a code, here, here's what I would say. Uh, don't be a paramedic. Go ahead and just be an EMT basic. And then you're like one of five or at least you're one of two and you got a buddy. And here's what I mean by that is if you're the only paramedic on the scene, especially of a code 99, don't plan on getting paramedic shit done because paramedic shit, unfortunately takes you out of the position of being able to be PIC. And a lot of it is, and this is the secret, not necessary. A lot of stuff we do as a paramedic has little data behind it, uh, or at least needs to be less of a priority than the stuff that the EMT basic can do. So let's take this call and look at it as though they were both EMT basics that arrived on scene. If they were both EMT okay. basics that arrived on scene, there would have been no fuss over whether or not to start a tube. Because that was kind of one of the slow spots that we that we discovered as we did this call right at the beginning was that for whatever reason, 
uh, Greenstick really wanted to get a tube. Uh, and I mean, I, I've definitely had those moments of like panic induced thought, sure. you know, like where I, I am, you know, I have been overwhelmed and my brain does, will just, it, you know, I, I, I am trying to operate fa- faster than my brain will permit me to. Absolutely. And so- I start coming up with weird shit. Like, uh, I can't get a mask seal because it's hard. Therefore I shouldn't BVM this patient. Like that's, I, yeah. I haven't had that thought, but I could totally see having that thought. <laughs> totally can't, especially when you have, I mean, essentially what you're doing is when you hit on C and you see a problem, you're opening up a toolbox, right? And yeah. when you look in there, there's just a fuck ton of tools. Your brain sits there and tries to pick the best tool. Well, the best tool is clearly a tube. Well, here's the thing. Arrive on scene. Forget all those tools. Go ahead and reduce your scope of practice down to an EMT basic scope. And now you have very few tools to choose from. Your decision becomes a lot easier and you can move on. And this kind of moves in kind of a good segue into something I had talked about earlier. I think it was our last episode, actually, as I talked about is one of our episodes. I don't remember which one, but I talked about the difference between being assessment focused and being treatment focused. When you are treatment focused, you tend to do things like I got to get this tube. I got to get this tube because this patient needs a tube. When you're assessment focused, you focus on the assessment. You're like, this patient needs to be oxygenated. When you focus on just a treatment and what you want to do is get someone intubated, there's only one thing that can possibly fulfill what your brain thinks you need, and that is getting a tube. But if you go back to an assessment and you say this patient needs to be oxygenated and ventilated, well, there's a lot of different things that can do that. There's BVMs, there's Kings, there's a crike. God forbid you need a crike, but there's crikes. There are different things that you can do. Suddenly your toolbox um, is, becomes easier and you have more options to get to where you want to go and you have simpler options. And so that was kind of the problem here is that we had a paramedic that walked in with a treatment focus. I want to apply the, the intervention of getting a tube instead of, I want to solve the problem of oxygenation. And so yeah. th- those would be my two things. Don't be the only paramedic, bring it down to an EMT basic level. When your resources are low, get the simple stuff done first Yeah, and worry I, about what, I, what the patient needs, not what you want to do. I, I totally back you on that. I, at 100%, you know, because the priority in a cardiac arrest is good compressions. Right. Right. You know? Absolutely. Um, so just focus that. And you know what? The panic will subside because you'll find that rhythm and then you'll find all that all that downtime in between compressions where you're like, yeah, oh, you know what? Actually, uh, I could really get it. Like, I actually could get an IV here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, I will like, say I'll spike a bag and then we- do breaths and then, you know, you do the compressions and I'll get that IV and then, you know, like things move. Yeah. So. I- And I will say, like, you can actually kind of see where this paramedic, uh, where the panic did stop. And that would be kind of right around the time I would say, uh, you know, after the EMTs made everything right uh, by saying, like, hey, (laughs) do you want the end title on this guy? Do you want these things done? Suddenly paramedic's like, yes, I do. And then you can kind of see the paramedic get comfortable when Greenstick starts ordering the patient like, hey, guys, let's go ahead and uh, titrate the ETCO2 uh, right around 35. 
and that millimeters of mercury. And that is that to me was kind of a sign of like, all right, the brain is able to engage. We're able to start commit, you know, we're able to start, you know, yep. issuing some orders and kind of going from there because the heart shit's over now. Right. I mean, we have our airway that's resolved. We have our IV that's resolved. And now it's just pushing the right drugs at the right time and making sure that we're pushing on the chest. So that was really kind of where things uh, kind of boiled down to for uh, for green stick. And so that did happen. So. Anyway, this is a good call. Yeah. I like it. It, it. This is I like this call because this is something that everyone is going to experience or everyone has experienced. Um, yeah, awesome call, man. Yeah, thank you, Greenstick. Um, thanks and, for listening. I'm actually really happy that Greenstick. Um, this is actually pretty. Uh, I love it. Like we actually get this quite a bit now. Is I I like what we're seeing because one of the things I think that Spencer and I have both talked about is that you got to take the ego out of being an EMS and you have to be willing to admit that you're going to do a less than stellar job sometimes. And it EMS can be so macho sometimes that we forget that. And I love the fact that we have people now sending us calls being like, hey, I fucked up. Would you guys mind telling thousands of people about it? Like, that's really, <laughs> you know, but I mean, really, though, it's a good sign that, that you know, like people are kind of taking the message uh, realistically, because here's the thing. It's like, you're not the only person fucking up. You may be one of the few people that talk about it, but you're not the only person doing it. And the beautiful thing about this is that it allows, it permits everybody to just kind of talk about it and learn from it. And right. like, this is definitely one that. Yeah, everybody can learn from. Everybody can take a piece from. So absolutely. Well, hey, again, congratulations to Kieran. Uh, you got your fifty bucks coming to you, and thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, keep an eye on our social media. You can check us out on Facebook at EMS twenty slash twenty. We are on Instagram at EMS twenty twenty show, and you can email us at EMS twenty twenty podcast at gmail dot com. Thanks again, for everyone, for listening. Um, Spence, you want to walk us out? Uh, yes, here's the door. Here's your $50. And, uh, you know, fuck you. Fuck you. You're cool. Fuck you. <laughs> all right. Sounds good, Ben. Uh, all right. Bye. Bye.